Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Dog Days edition of Romaniacs. The EU elections have been and gone. A lame duck PM has been wandering around London with the American president that she unwisely invited over for a state visit back in happier times. <laughs> and the Tories are uh, involved in a leadership contest. And not for the first time, nobody knows what's going to happen next. I'm Dorian Linsky. I've got two of our regulars with me this week. Roz Taylor edits LSE Brexit, where she fights a valiant rearguard action in favour of experts who know facts and stuff. Hi, Roz. How are Hello. you? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. You wrote a great column for our Patreon backers this week, essentially saying that Remainers need to stop being intimidated by the Leave hardcore. You said disengagement isn't working and aggression is going unchallenged. What prompted you to, to write that and what do you think we should do differently? Yeah, well, it was the fact that we seem to be becoming ever more polarised. Um, and this despite people constantly telling us that we have to get together and talk to each other and it, it, it's just not happening and I think this is actually because leavers and remainers tend to operate in very different styles um, I don't know whether it's true whether they operate in different styles um, away from social media but certainly on social media there has been some academic research done and leavers tend to be more aggressive in their in their in their, the way they engage with other people about politics on Facebook in particular and because of that, I think there is a tendency among Remainers to be a little bit retiring and want to retreat from conflict and not want to stir things up and create difficulties and have family rows over lunches and so on. And it's not doing us any good because we're just turning away and we're not necessarily challenging people. Given that the strategy so far of turning away has failed, I think we have to start getting more bolshy, getting more <laughs> fighting. So what you think is that Twitter just need, needs more fighting? <laughs> I'm not, not talking about Twitter. Most, most people are not on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Facebook needs more fighting. Fair point. <laughs> um, we also have Ian Dunt, editor, editor of Politics.co.uk, and that guy off the telly. Uh, what do you think? Have Remainers allowed Leavers to, to sort of set the terms of, of the debate? I mean, how do you... I mean, you're quite... You can be a little pugilistic. <laughs> I'm, I am quite fighty. Um, although I'm trying, let's, there was a Marina Hyde thing that she wrote on Twitter, of just like, don't fight on Twitter. She was basically just like, it's not, most of the time you are not going to do anything and you will just both end up looking silly. And I've tried to follow that, but it's not always possible. Um, I think, I, I don't know, I think we, we sort of do all right. The trouble is that no one's speaking the same language. So, you know, you, you have this conversation on the leave side it's to do with things that really that it's, it's almost impossible to address. And when you do, you quickly get stuck in the same old sort of rut of like, well, it will be fine because, you know, X, Y, Z. So I don't. I mean, well, it, I, it yeah, I suppose you, yeah, it's, it's hard to sort of drill down into the detail hmm. when arguing with a, a leaver on like it doesn't it doesn't tend to go to that territory. You, I guess you can keep on trying to claw people back. The, the, the best series of questioning I find is and then what? 
Hmm. So whatever is said, you know, okay, so this is the, so we're going to have, you know, alternative technology on the border. Okay, so which technology specifically are you talking about? Like, how can this be done? Once you go into that level of detail, you very rarely, it's very hard to keep it there because what you usually get back is a sort of like, well, either I'm sure we'll sort it out or this is exactly the kind of thing we would expect from an elitist, blah, 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 blah. And so it it will often drift away from you and it's quite hard to to root it down in sort of facts and, and structure. Our special guest this week, impeccably behaved on all social media platforms, is Dominic Grieve MP. He's the MP for Beaconsfield. He's famously a polite rebel and a relentless campaigner for Remain. We can thank him for the meaningful parliamentary vote on any Brexit deal, rather than it just being enacted by government fiat. He backs a final say on any deal, and he's very kindly appearing on a podcast called Remaniacs, just to make his position very clear. Hello, Dominic. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> um, we first tried to book you, you many months ago, and you, and you had to cancel because there was yet another major Brexit vote in, in Parliament. You've been an MP since 97, is that correct? Yes. Um, have you experienced anything remotely comparable to this in terms of dominating the parliamentary schedule where you're constantly being pulled back into the Commons for... It's completely unprecedented and indeed it's totally skewed politics so that my colleagues who got in in 2015 or 2017, I suppose the 2015ers did experience six months of normality. But for my colleagues who got in in 2017, it's impossible to explain to them how Parliament normally works because they haven't experienced it. Uh, Instead, they've been in a sort of maelstrom in which most of the normal parliamentary rules have been ripped up and how you'd expect a parliamentary term to unfold, how a government behaves, how an opposition behaves, all those things have completely gone. And instead, there's every impression, really, of chaos, uh, unpredictability, and it's very wearing. I I can't deny. I mean, I've had four over four years as Attorney-General, which is a demanding ministerial office, unusual one, often going to bed at one o'clock in the morning, having to do a lot of box work, as it's called, when I got home at 11 o'clock at night. But at least you had a feeling of purpose. Mm. This feels like some sort of obsessional condition where you're just going round and round in circles and you keep on finding after three or four months of effort that you're largely where you were at the beginning of that. And the things that are being said go round and round in circles gradually events move on, particularly because where there's a cliff edge at the end of all this because of the Article 50 process, although that can sometimes be put back. So you have moments of high tension, uh, very curious moments of elation where for some reason the logjam breaks and everybody knows that although it's artificial, it won't last, people get terribly excited and suddenly there's like an atmosphere of release. Within 24 hours... The euphoria's worn off and and it's replaced with this sort of grinding sense of hopelessness. And I think it affects both sides of this argument. Both mm. are, you know, get increasingly irritated and angry. I think in some ways it's a miracle that within Parliament we've preserved the courtesies as well as we have. Outside, it's been rather more difficult. Mm. Well, obviously Brexit has, has claimed Theresa May's premiership. Um, how do you think it will be regarded in in hindsight the kind of the job that she made or or didn't make of of Brexit? I think history will be fairly kind to her because there will be an acceptance that she took over a poison chalice uh, and how that was to be drunk and survived was always going to be very difficult. Uh, And the fact that she's a person clearly of honourable intentions, a very big sense of public duty... And her general personality, a sort of personal rectitude, which I think has shone through all this, means that I think people on the whole 
will have um, will have kind words to say about what she attempted. I think one can be much more critical about what she decided to do, uh, because it sometimes seems to me that the enormity of the crisis she seems to have missed when she took over. She took over and said. I have a solution to this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver Brexit in a particular way, very narrow framework model, and she persevered with that and just carried on with it until it finally ran out of road. And it was predictable from a very early stage that that was what was likely to happen because of the lack of a parliamentary majority, particularly after the 2017 election Mm. went wrong for her. And her red lines proved to be traps... And she never seemed to me to have the political imagination to find a way out of her dilemma. When finally, the very, very end, in the last week, it seemed to me that she had got to the point where she was beginning to do the right things. Uh, Then, of course, by then her authority had so drained that she wasn't able to carry recalcitrance within the party. And indeed, by that stage, within the Conservative Party... Her authority had been so undermined, she wasn't able to take people with her. Although whether those who decided to get rid of her will come to regret that decision, I think is an open question. Because on the face of it, whoever replaces her is going to be facing exactly the same set of problems. Yeah, the chalice isn't any less poison. Were you surprised, I mean, by the timing... Um, of her resignation, did you did you sort of perhaps expect her to to go earlier or to survive later, or did it did you know did you get the feeling that it was reaching a crunch point around this time? I think we felt I certainly felt it was reaching a crunch point in late March as we ran up to the first March deadline. As the ERG were becoming ever more strident, as it was becoming clear that the ERG would never agree to anything, and we were coming to this serious issue about can we extend shall we revoke even? Because I think one's got to accept that she is a person who has always been opposed to a no-deal Brexit. Although why she ever put into the manifesto no deal is better than a bad deal, there is, I think, a criticism that can logically be made. But I don't believe she ever believed in the no-deal Brexit. She sees that as the end of the United Kingdom uh, and uh, an economic and national security catastrophe. So I always had the sense that in her back pocket she had that letter to hand in, if necessary, at the 11th hour to stop that happening. But in late March, it did look as if she might go. And she didn't. And then thereafter, I began to think that, in fact, she could survive for quite a considerable period of time. But I think the difficulty came is that the... The EU elections and all the issues surrounding that and the ruthless sucking out of the Conservative vote in both directions, one to the Brexit Party and another to the Liberal Democrats, fatally undermined her ability to continue. Mm. And by then, the decisions which, if she'd made in January or February, might have been deliverable, became impossible. And as often happens with prime ministers, there's that terrible moment where power just ebbs away. I should make clear I had no desire to see her go at all, because it never seemed to me that that was going to make any useful contribution to solving this crisis. Well, Dominic will be with us throughout the show. Uh, we'll know about returning to the subject of the Tory leadership, as well as the breakup of Change UK. It seems to me like they lived their life like a candle in the wind. <laughs> what does the Chuck Tig split mean for Remain and the future of multi-party politics? 
But first, Donald Trump's visit to the UK, otherwise known as King Ralph Live. <laughs> During a gross and embarrassing couple of days, pretty much the only substantive thing that Trump said was that the NHS and anything else would be on the table for those post-Brexit trade talks. <clears throat> and of course, the next day, he denied it. Um, Ian, how, uh, how seriously does one take uh, Trump's statements on these things? Because the, his, his initial, there's an initial suggestion that the NHS was sort of up for grabs, obviously, you know, panicked a lot of people. Um, but I don't know if he knows what he's talking about. He definitely doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, the NHS is not up for grabs, but uh, I think NICE is, the National Institute of Clinical um, Excellence. NICE is something that American pharmaceutical companies absolutely fucking detest, and that is that it looks at the effectiveness of a drug and the price. And by doing so, it has quite significant effects on the way that drugs, uh, drug prices operate worldwide. Americans don't care about the existence of the NHS. They're completely indifferent as to whether we want to have socialised medicine over here or whatever. In fact, it makes an extremely attractive uh, customer. What they hate is its ability to control drug prices for itself and therefore the knock-on effect you get and the rest. So that is going to be a major part of any future FDA. In terms of privatising the NHS, there's no need for the Americans to do it anyway because we have done it to ourselves. We, we did it years ago. It's already possible for American companies and other companies to provide services in the NHS. And that has its own range of problems, which aren't really ideological. They're about thinking, how, what is it that you can do, as with all of these things, to stop companies from picking the easiest bits? To say, for instance, hip operations, which are essentially like a factory line. You can do a hip operation, do a hip operation. Companies love that. When someone comes in with a strange spinal problem that you can't quite ascertain what it is and you have to figure it out and then you send it off, the profit dynamic is much weaker and that stuff often gets lumped onto the state. So there are issues there, but those issues are of our own making for us to deal with. There's nothing to do with the Americans. The thing is drug prices. Because the, the stuff that they're, you know, interested in, pharmaceuticals, the food standards... Um, it's the stuff that really does sort of seem to resonate with people. Chlorinated chicken. It's a, it's a very powerful kind of message there. What is there a, the, that the Americans might want in a trade deal that would be more acceptable to us? Like what's what's on the table that actually would be fair enough? Not much. The, it, we are going to be upset by pretty much all of it. The EU and the US are the two great big regulatory superpowers. And they're in constant battle on these sort of issues. What the US would like more than anything is to have a regulatory foothold in Europe, right against the territory. And on that basis, that's what they would want from us. And yes, we talk about the hormone injected beef, we talk about the poultry. What we don't talk about enough is actually microbial regulations at the EU level, which are much, much stronger, much, much better than what they have in the US. On that basis... If, if you decide that you are not going to talk about pharmaceuticals, you're not going to talk about regulations of agricultural products, you're not going to talk about data protection regulations, there ain't much left for you to talk to about the Americans that makes a, a meaningful deal. What the Brexiters then say is, look, there's all this unopened space in American FTAs that we would be able to open up. Now, I do not think we would be able to open up because that space is mostly about services. And on services, I mean... The Americans haven't even opened up services to each other. If you're, if you're a lawyer in New York, just see how well a chance you have of going to the other side of the country and practicing law. It can't be done. So on the basis that they don't allow services inside of the US to move around freely as they do in Europe, good luck to us securing that stuff. Um, Ross, is the, is the NHS, I mean, that's obviously, it's, it's Labour's kind of, it's, you know, the Labour's always kind of laid ownership on that. Um, is that, a, is that a resonant message uh, for Leave voters, for people who still support Leave? To, is, is that likely to kind of <clears throat> change their mind if you go, OK, you know, pharmaceutical prices are up for grabs here? 
It may do. It's hard to see that any economic argument, quite frankly, moves Leave voters because our experience so far is that no matter what you tell people, no matter how much you tell them they're going to lose large amounts of money, they don't listen because they have invested in something and when you have invested in something, it is very hard to let it go. And anyway, all that economic stuff is for the birds, it's for other people. I'm not affected by it personally. Mm -hmm. Um, That is fundamentally the problem. Economic arguments do not necessarily cut through. And I actually wish that anti-Brexit groups weren't harping on quite as much as they are about the issue of privatisation of the NHS because, as Ian has pointed out, 7% of the NHS is already run by private providers. Uh, It's not free at the point of use. We all pay, unless we're um, elderly or children, we all pay for prescriptions. Um, These these things have gradually been eroded away and it's important that certain uh, key core values of the, um, the NHS preserved. But it's not at all clear how that relates to the demand for a US FTA. I think the more pressing issue with the NHS and Brexit is the workforce. Um, We are losing the European workforce already. Uh, We will struggle again to to recruit enough doctors, enough especially GPs, enough nurses. The vacancy rates are very, very high and that is not going to be helped by leaving the EU and having any kind of deal that cracks down on freedom of movement. Dominic, leadership contenders Matt Hancock and Dominic Raab made a point of rebuffing this idea. Is there, I mean, how does, like I said, protect the NHS is such a strong message to to, to Labour supporters. How big is that constituency within your party? I think it's a big constituency. And I agree with what's just been said. I don't think there are, there is a small number of ideologues believing in free market economics who are convinced that the United Kingdom's withdrawal from the EU will introduce a revolutionary changes in our economic framework to take us to a sort of Singapore of the northeast Atlantic. Low regulation, low taxation, uh, low welfare, uh, and nevertheless economically very dynamic and buoyant and building completely new economic offerings to the world of a variety of kinds, both manufacture, high-tech and services. If you go outside of that small group and talk to the vast majority of the electorate, and that includes Conservatives who voted Brexit, Mm. I don't think they have any interest in this model whatsoever. (laughs) Uh, They are interested in what most people in Western Europe are interested in, which is the the irreconcilable of low taxes and high levels of welfare (laughs) spending. I mean, that's what most of politics (coughs) in the United Kingdom has been all about. And I don't detect any change in that at all. So, of course, people think a free trade agreement with the United States, this sounds really exciting. Different from Europe, less less oppression by bureaucracy. I think they failed to understand that you're subjecting yourself to a whole series of rules. There'll probably have to be an arbitral tribunal like the European Court of Justice to resolve (laughs) the differences. But all that, I think, is largely blanked out. Um, it's, It's an aspiration. Actually, when it comes to the NHS... Uh, then I think they will have found President Trump's comments worrying. What is this all about? Whilst being slightly puzzled as to why this should come into the picture at all. And I think we're going to see that quite persistently. And of course it's right. I mean, the economic issues in this argument have pretty much disappeared, particularly for Brexiters. And look at the way Farage managed the EU uh, Parliament elections campaign. He didn't even really talk about Brexit. It was about betrayal. It was about the betrayal of the democratic rights of the British people. 
And the reason why you end up with the stridency on one side is because for those people in my constituency who voted leave, for many of them, they are deeply offended that it has not been delivered upon. They consider, therefore, that the objections are illegitimate. And that's where the words traitor start to emerge, because they see this as a settled decision which cannot be questioned, even if they themselves were never very clear as to the exact form that delivery ought to take. And equally, coming back to where we started this afternoon, you have the Remainers who, because they're essentially status quo individuals, are worried about the breakdown of the sort of social fabric with people expressing themselves in such virulent terms against them and therefore tend to pull their punches because they find it quite alarming because it's a sign of a sort of societal disintegration, which I personally think is exaggerated. I think the UK is a pretty robust environment. Whatever people may shout at me in the street, that's all part and parcel of it. I don't think the world's about to come to an end. But I think that's why you've got the two juxtapositions. But... Apart from these aspirations economically, I don't get the impression that outside this very small group of sort of economic wonks, I'm not being unkind to them, but that's how it comes across, there is really any understanding... destroying our standards of debate. (laughs) (laughs) There is really any sense of what Brexit is supposed to deliver economically, apart from the fact that during the referendum campaign itself, the Leavers made the promise that somehow you wouldn't notice the economic consequences of leaving. And that bit of guilt has definitely been rubbed off the gingerbread. I think people now realise that there are costs. So you get a completely different narrative, which, oh, this is all about blood, toil, tears and sweat. Mm. And I genuinely get emails from perfectly nice um, constituents saying, you know, where is your Dunkirk spirit? Mm. Anyhow, Dunkirk happened because it happened, but why you should inflict Dunkirk on yourself voluntarily <laughs> is just beyond understanding, and yet that's where they've ended up, because it's now an expression of national identity and pride that it has to be carried out. And that seems sort of invulnerable to quite reasonable point i'm not talking about even the wonky stuff but saying like okay right we are now going to be in a new trading arrangement we are now going to be at the mercy uh of you know in one case america which is currently being led by this guy um now that would seem to be worrying and even from a nationalist you know point of view you might just think you know we don't want to be bossed around by the americans but that doesn't seem to you know the, the sort of specter of trump doesn't seem to kind of make people worried at all is it just one of is it, is it just point after point argument after argument just kind of like crashes against this wall of it may be that people's is. positions are so entrenched certainly for a, a section of the community on both both sides of this argument that really nothing that anybody else is going to say is going to make any difference but i do detect a little that the penny is beginning to drop that if you leave the eu and leave the protections that the eu offers you You're out there in a difficult and rather dangerous world where the irony is that your amount of leverage will be substantially reduced and you will therefore be bullied Mm. by other countries. Whereas actually being part of the EU prevents that bullying from going on, whether it's bullying by the United States or feeling that commercial necessity with China means that you need to think about continuing to use Huawei when there may be good reasons Uh, why you shouldn't. 
uh, or whether it's the gradual loss of influence, which is undoubtedly taking place, whether it's losing our seat on the International Court of Justice for the first time since it was set up, or indeed the whole business over the Chagos archipelago in the Indian Ocean. Uh, I, I leave aside our treatment of the Chagossians, which is a scandal, but in reality, Mauritius's claim to the Chagos is extremely uh, arguable uh, and indeed quite possible to argue against it. And yet when finally it came up in front of the United Nations General Assembly, despite the efforts of the United States to help us, we were abandoned by close allies uh, who abstained and the sort of influence we would normally have been able to bring to bear to minimise this particular uh, mm. international diplomatic matter uh, was no longer there. And I think this is part of a pattern. And then the ultimate irony is that if you talk to people who are our friends outside Europe, and I don't just mean the countries of the old Commonwealth or, or the United States, but you go, for example, to the Middle East, where there are a number of states which see Britain as close friends, um, they all perceive that UK influence is going to be diminished by departure and they worry about it. Moving on, Donald Tusk warned us to use our time wisely and Conservatives have taken away his word by giving up six weeks to campaign on who will lead the party. <laughs> um, only one candidate, Sam Gimo, is committed to a second referendum. Two of the 13, James Cleverley and Kit Malthouse, dropped out on yesterday. Yes, Malthouse compromised. Rory Stewart is popping up in a car park, soft play centre near you, just for a chat. And Boris Johnson dropped two plot twists, his new prime ministerial haircut and a declaration that we need to stop banging on about Brexit. Um, Dominic Creeve, it would be crass to ask you who you're going to be supporting, but... <laughs> Who are you going to be supporting? <laughs> I shall be supporting Sam Gima on the uh, first round, uh, assuming that Sam is able to get the necessary support in order to stand, which I very much hope will be the case. Uh, and I'm doing that because he's the only candidate who's had the bravery to stand up and tell the truth, which is that this whole business is either going to end in a general election or a referendum. And it's whoever becomes the leader of the party is going to have to make that choice, whereas all the other candidates at the moment keep on insisting that a referendum is definitely entirely out of the question. And I think they're being less than forthright and honest about the issues, because unless they wish to precipitate a general election themselves, which, as matters stand at the moment, looks to be disastrous for the Conservative Party, they are going to have to face up to the fact that I think a referendum is the only way out. Some talk about crashing us out of the EU uh, simply by a fluxion of time. Yes, that is technically possible and could happen on the 31st of October, but I happen to think that a Prime Minister who tries to do that is going to find it very difficult and may well precipitate a general election as a consequence. So um, that's why I'm supporting Sam, who in any case is a very good universities minister when he was in office. I like immensely and represents everything that I can see best about conservatism for the future. Now, it's probable, indeed very likely, that uh, his candidature will not be successful. <laughs> and, that, and that, from my point of view, is not the issue because it enables somebody to go out and argue an argument which I think is important to be heard in the, on, on the hustings. Ultimately, this is going to be whittled down. I don't know how many... Um, uh, there are a top four players in this. Uh, which one of them or the, which two of them are going to emerge out of this is far from clear. Could you just name the top four for people? Well, the, the, top, the top four are clearly Boris Johnson, uh, Dominic Raab, Michael Gove 
uh, and Jeremy Rutt. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, rather, not right. Um, so uh, the, so um, those, are the, those are the four um, uh, who I would expect to probably accumulate the most votes as this process goes through. But that's not to say that that's inevitable. Uh, it's uh, the electorate, the parliamentary electorate is an, a curious one. Uh, and people can change their minds, and there's very little doubt from hearing some of the things I've heard today that uh, Rory uh, Stewart is having an impact with his car park um, podcasts, or however you want to describe them, (laughs) and that it's proving quite successful. And I have to say, Rory is also talking a great deal of sense, and listening to him, and I know him very well, it strikes me that some of the things he's saying are things which need to be listened to. And it may be that if some of my colleagues do start listening to what he's saying, that he may do better, which I would be very pleased about. Ian, I think that it's, um, you know, it's obviously possible to go, well, well, you know, why do we have to go through this kind of long, drawn-out leadership contest when there's, there's, there's other stuff that we should be uh, concentrating on? Um, but it also I kind of feel like it's quite interesting rather than those sort of coronation-style you know, leadership changes where you you know, every voice seems to be kind of represented. There's 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 a lot of different people out there. Some don't seem to have a chance, but every wing of the party seems to be represented. How have you? Um, and Roy Stewart seems to be kind of you know the breakout uh, the breakout star at least on social media. Um, what do you make of the contest overall? Is it is it is, is are there reasons to be you know inspired or intrigued? No, I don't think so. Um, it's trying to be like real positive. No, I noticed that. I've never seen you do that before, and it made me quite uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so no, I'm, I find it quite dispiriting, really, because the dynamics of it um, and the electorate of it drives it into fantasy land, and so the pressure is always to start ruling out the options that I think will be required as soon as the leadership position is taken by someone, you know, like a referendum, like an election. Um, I, you, I can basically split them into three categories. I'm sorry about this, Dominic. You're not going to like the descriptions. <laughs> um, so on, on, the, on the one side, you've got the reasonables. And so that's Rory Stewart, um, Sam Gimia, I think Matt Hancock. Mm. Um, they, and, and I mean that most in terms of the kind of language that they're using. They're talking about ideas around trade-offs, around, well, look, this is going to hurt a bit. We need this. It doesn't look likely that we're going to get the alternative arrangements. We can't renegotiate. In terms of the, the propositions themselves, they're actually not that distinct. I mean, Hancock's stuff is kind of quite a lot like Mays, but with, you know, sort of additional incentives to border communities. Um, then there's the guys in the middle, which, which basically just continuity may. I mean, even and even people like Rob are in this category, where they're basically just saying, well, we're going to try and renegotiate the deal um, and then bring it back. A lot of the time they're ruling out extending Article 50 to do that, which is an extraordinary thing to say, because you just think, well, so hang on a minute. So your plan is to go to the Europeans, renegotiate the exact alternative arrangements, which anyway as a concept doesn't make sense, but then B, if you could get them to do it, it's going to take a long time to negotiate, then come back and pass that through Parliament in time for October the 31st. Like, this cannot be done, and it is absurd to pretend otherwise. So you can split the continuity maze into two, the sort of the hardliners and the non-hardliners, and there are rumours that Michael Gove has got like a much more realistic time limit that he's going to come up with for the end of 2020, although he hasn't said it himself yet. And then there's just the batchets. And the batchets is re- it's really sort of Angela Ledsam and Esther McVeigh, who are just, I mean, Esther McVeigh is fucking, she's gone fucking crazy, man. Like, I mean, I, the stuff that she's saying is now about, we're going to cleanse out any of the remainers from this. I mean, it's becoming quite virulent. Yeah. She also seems to have gone a step further by saying that she would have um, 
the alternative arrangements for the border in place by October 31st, so not just negotiated and passed through Parliament, but actually on the border by that stage, which... I mean, I've talked to a few people who are quite sympathetic towards alternative arrangements stuff, but I haven't heard anyone but her claim that they could do that in the next few months. So those are the two that are really that are pushing for no deal, that aren't even talking about renegotiation. But that's basically your three camps. And I've got to say, for anyone outside of the reasonables, and even for some of them, the stuff that I'm hearing is not very encouraging. Ross, do you think anyone, uh, any of them has a chance of uniting uh, the party? Do you think the, do you think somebody because there are people like Gove and Johnson yeah. are kind of playing it yeah. a little a little kind of vague on some points. Um, no, I don't think Johnson can unite the party. I don't think Gove can unite the party either. He certainly, uh, more importantly, I think they would suffer enormously in a general election from a Conservative's point of view, because there are big constituencies of people who absolutely loathe them. But uh, in t- I, I know, yeah, I mean the Roy Stewart mania we've been we've been seeing. And the, the, the thing that he's doing very well is talking about things that are not Brexit. So he's popping up in car parks and so on, and he's saying, I want to talk about social care, let's talk about social care. And people are loving it. Of course they're loving it, because they're talking about something that's not Brexit. We've all been desperate to talk about something that's not Brexit for years. And it's so refreshing, and it's nice, it's great. But he doesn't really seem to appreciate that Brexit is an enormous roadblock in the way of all the things that he will be trying to achieve in his shake-up of social care and his other plans. Well, that's almost like what Corbyn does. Here are all these wonderful ideas that I would be doing if it wasn't for Brexit. Yeah, he wants to move on. Colin, we all want to move on, but it's there and, you know, you cannot Hmm. just say I'm going to do it and move on because it's going to create so many problems for you, even, even assuming that you can get it through Parliament and I don't see a way that Rory Stewart at the moment can get his plan through Parliament. I think he would have a wider appeal among the public. I think that's what you're seeing now. His problem, of course, is that the initial appeal he has to have is uh, for firstly for Tory MPs and then for the Tory membership in order to get anywhere at all. And that is not the same as the public. So, yeah... He's a very, very interesting character. I mean, I, I've, be, I've been fascinated by his career as it's, as it's followed and the things he's done. And there's a particularly interesting book he wrote a few years back on uh, the Scottish border, uh, the English-Scottish border. He walked along it, as he did in Afghanistan. And, and he also smoked opium just to be polite. Yeah. Which I well, find... I mean, I, it's one of the best reasons to smoke opium. I find one of the, the, the most English <laughs> reasons to smoke <laughs> opium. <laughs> <laughs> I just, ah, yeah. ah, it's going to be awkward if I don't. But, I mean, he's, uh, he's, very he's, he's very interesting. In borders, and as someone who's so interested in borders, I find it very strange that someone who is so sensitive to the history of the English-Scottish border wants to create a situation where, which would basically ensure that Scotland leaves the UK, because that's what Brexit, mm-hmm. a hard Brexit, will mean. Um, can we talk a bit about Sam Gimme's, um referendum idea? It's quite interesting, actually, because for the last few months, there's been this real split in Remain of do you put no deal on the ballot? And there's very influential people and I think quite sensible people on both sides. This is one of those issues that I've really struggled with. The obvious argument is if you don't put it there, it's got no democratic legitimacy, whatever result you get. So why bother having a referendum in the first place? Why not just revoke it? But if you do put it there, you've gone functionally insane as a country. So where do we end up with these two sort of things? His plan is to have leave versus remain followed by deal versus no deal. This is the referendum plan as he has laid it out. Now, 
Uh, on the one hand, I, I find this really interesting because on the one hand, I, I get it. I, I see what he's trying to do there. You sort of sidestep that whole issue. And of course, it's much easier to try and get to secure a referendum if you can offer the other side a chance to get no deal. That's how to, mm. to bring them on side. On the flip side, what concerns me about it is that on each stage of that two-stage referendum thing, you've still got reality versus unicorns. You've got leave versus remain, so the same old shit that we had before, where you can project whatever you want onto the leave side. And then you've got deal versus no deal. And again, I don't see why anyone would go for deal when the people who are selling no deal will tell you, well, this is going to be the triumphant return of, you know, infinite cash for the NHS. And so I'm sort of struck by how much I understand the strategic sort of intelligence behind that proposition. But also uh, my instinct is to think that that kind of two-step referendum almost doesn't quite guarantee, but suggests that you would probably end up with no deal. I don't have an answer to this. It's basically mm. just to put it out there. It's a new kind of idea and it has advantages, but also qu- quite severe dangers. Dominic, you obviously it's not like the, the Tories were ever, um, have, have never had kind of, you know, internal divisions before and, and or indeed sort of purges like the purges of the kind of wets in the in the early 80s um uh, how much has what has brexit done to to the party <laughs> like how much is it how much has it sort of changed it are there voices because i think there are voices now that are very very prominent that really should be in a cupboard somewhere <laughs> um <laughs> How much sort of damage has it done to? Uh, it's done it a lot. Of, it's done it a lot of damage. I, we, historically, our success has been, as a party has been based on being a broad church capable of encompassing quite a wide diversity of views. But essentially, because the party has been very pragmatic and therefore mm. pragmatic decision making has lain at the root of how decisions are taken. So, as a consequence, it's been possible to have the degree of rigour from some of the sort of uh, Adam Smith economists matched up against the rather more paternalist end of the party (coughs) which sees welfare provision and other things as important and that tension has usually worked quite well generally speaking I think because it has tended to be the moderate towards the centre which has been in charge but with these other groups providing quite a lot of creative input into what happens. Uh, And that's been the secret of our success. And also we've adjusted. But Brexit is a revolutionary act underpinned by an ideological view. And so it's very hard to reconcile with uh, the traditional norms under which the party operates. Now, my Brexit colleagues would say, well, we took a pragmatic decision to resolve this and having resolved it in a way that we like but you don't like, the problem has arisen because you won't accept it pragmatically. But, of course, the difficulty was that the question was very badly constructed. It was open to widely differing interpretations and I'm afraid a lot of poison came into the system during the referendum campaign itself. It's impossible to escape the conclusion that some of... It goes on both sides. You know, the allegations by the Brexiters that there was a project fear, which may have been an exaggeration of risk, but actually I'm quite forgiving of because risk is a very different, difficult thing, which is difficult to quantify. But things like the £350 million pound a, a week promise uh, were outrageous. And so even into the, the immediate aftermath, you had a degree of poison introduced into the relationships. Uh, and that, coupled with the fact that Brexit is proving in practice undeliverable, 
has been uniquely damaging. I mean, that's why the Prime Minister, having set off to try to reconcile and bring people together, at the end of three difficult years, has hit the buffers. And within associations, it's also polarised opinion. And the other thing... I rather agree, is that there has been a trend in the Conservative Party that goes back probably 25, 30 years. Ever since, really, the Maastricht debates in the early 90s, where activism within the party has tended to require statements which are negative about the EU. So that, at best, the EU is... Uh, an unfortunate necessity and a tendency to blame the EU for things, anything that goes wrong, even when manifestly, actually, it had nothing to do with the EU and was a domestic matter. So the default position has progressively built up where the EU has been seen in negative terms. And one of the consequences is that activism and party membership is linked now to people who tend to take that view even though very large numbers of people who vote for us or did don't share those views. I mean, I have the second biggest association in the country. I have 1,200 members. They're good people. I want to understand that. They're really, and some of them, are Remainers. I don't wish to suggest they're not. But I suspect that panning out, it's probably 70% at leave. And of those 70%, I would think that over 50% are in the mood for a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit because it's become an issue of ideological importance to them. And yet 36,000 people voted Conservative in 2017 in my constituency. So what do the other 34,800 mm -hmm. actually think? And the truth is they probably think very differently. Of course, some of them will think the same way, but a lot of them don't. And the risk to us is that the longer this has gone on, the more the lifeblood is being sucked out of the party. And in a sense, the EU parliamentary elections absolutely show this. Because it's not just that we lost and hemorrhage votes to the Brexit party, as large numbers of members of my association, nominally Conservative, undoubtedly went and voted for the Brexit party. I have absolutely no doubt about it. Some of them have told me they've done so. Um, but equally... Large numbers of moderate Conservatives abandoned the party and went off and probably voted for the Liberal Democrats. Some may have voted for change, but I suspect the majority went and voted Lib Dem. And this is a very dangerous place to be in. As a consequence, we were absolutely vacuumed out. Mm. And I think we're likely to see in the uh, Peterborough by-election something similar happen to us. The only thing which prevents it being an absolutely massive crisis is that the main opposition party is similarly in total disarray. Well, that brings us nicely to uh, Change UK and farewell to to half of them um, because <laughs> they had they had eleven six have uh, have left, including um, interim leader Heidi Allen after the poor performance in the EU elections. The party will now consist of new leader Anna Subri, Mike Gapes, Chris Leslie, Joan Ryan, and Anne Coffey. Um, so, kind of, yeah, strange scenario of four ex-Labour MPs led by one ex-Tory MP. Departing MPs are thought to be considering joining the, you guessed it, Lib Dems, and the split was apparently not friendly, with Subri calling it deeply disappointing. Pointing? What is that? Pointing. <laughs> Pointing. Um, Roz, are we sad to see them go? They came into our life so briefly, like Mary Poppins, but without 
cleaning the house or looking after the kids. <laughs> and now, and now, and now they seem to be on their way. Um, is that is that is there a reason to sort of mourn that experiment? No, I think uh, they had they had extremely little time to get their act together before the European Parliament elections, which, let's be clear, didn't, didn't, uh, we didn't think we were going to have until fairly recently. And basically that gave them very little time to come up with any kind of strategy, certainly to come up with any kind of marketing or that, that kind of, they were, they were Their marketing was appalling. I mean, and I say this as somebody who, of course, policy is important, but presentation is important too, and they just totally failed at that, and they kept on failing at it, and they never got any better at it. So they were tested too early, essentially, um, and I think the... I think they might have held together a bit longer had it not for the for the EP elections. I think it's quite promising that the um, more interesting, with the exception of Anna Subri, what you might call the more interesting MPs have left, Heidi Allen, uh, mm. Chukara Manor in particular, and I will be very interested to see if they join the Lib Dems, and I hope they do, because I think they will be, they will be an asset to, to their efforts. But fundamentally, their problem was that their proposition was not unique enough. If you were a Remainer, then you might as well vote for the Lib Dems. Why vote for Change UK? What was different about them? Ian, was that the argument that seemed to split them? Because I got the feeling that some people, including maybe Heidi Allen, uh, were quite up for uh, you know merger or some kind of deal with the Lib Dems, and Anna Subri definitely wasn't. Was that the kind of breaking there lo- point? There were lots of different reports about who was pushing against that more than other figures, and it doesn't necessarily correlate with the with the way that those names have split there. Actually, so oh, I'm yeah. not I, I, I'm a little bit uncertain about that at the moment. Um, yes, that was a, that was an issue. I mean, th- th- there were there were there were sort of blockages to how much they could do because of the electoral commission, but nevertheless, you know. I agree, they got tested way too early. But also, it, it, it was galling how little they seemed to have learnt from the last three years in terms of the kind of language that they used, um, in terms of just seeing the fire in their belly, in terms of not instantly recognising that when Remainers look at this situation, they think, well, this is a national emergency. Other Remainers, leading Remainers, keep on saying this is a national mm. emergency. So then why would you not be working together? Surely you're not going to start prioritising, you know, the way that things are going to operate for your party over things, over the mission. And that is poison with Remainers. Making it look like Remain is the second of your, of your, in your list of priorities is absolute poison. And, and I think <laughs> rightly so, given how severe the situation is. I, I'm quite happy about this, by the way, because I have a little mystical land where sometime in the future, Luciana Berger might be the leader of the Liberal Democrats. And that, that land <laughs> makes me incredibly happy I want it I want it so much and so this is finally positioning all the things I'm like maybe 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 one day I'll get what I want because there is some interesting talent in the in yeah the there's some there. serious talent they're now independent mm-hmm. um, Dominic obviously looking back uh, it wouldn't have been a great idea um, but at the time of, of, of that of that split when, when Anna Subi Sarah Willis and Heidi Allen left um, and these are your, your, your allies as, as Tory Remainers were you, were you ever tempted to join them? no were you asked? I, I'm sure that they would have had me if, if I had <laughs> wanted to go, to go there, uh, of course. And they're good and valued colleagues, and we'd worked together very hard in the first 12, 18 months over Brexit. Uh, very valuable and loyal colleagues. I was very sorry that they went. And, and my reasoning for thinking that they were making a mistake was that was precisely that it wasn't clear to me how this new group was going to emerge into something different. 
And, and we have to accept that whilst I found cooperating with Labour colleagues one of the most interesting aspects of the last 18 months, and indeed not just Labour colleagues, I mean colleagues from other political parties sharing like-minded view on, on Brexit, I'm also perfectly aware that once you get out of the Brexit issue, we have considerable differences. I mean, I am a Tory. I can't identify myself in another way. And, and therefore, to start trying to put together a package of policies which goes beyond Brexit is always going to be quite challenging. Quite apart from the fact that I think this was really the key issue. You have to ask them, so I can't speak on their behalf, but as I do talk to them. The key issue as to why they've split is the sense that some of them had that in terms of dealing what had brought them together, which was the Brexit challenge, they were not making a positive contribution to that debate by being in a political party, that they were just splitting areas of the Remain vote, and the Remain mm. vote is very split. Mm. And that actually, as independent MPs, they were doing far more good in Parliament by producing this independent element and working loosely together than they were in trying to create a mini political, embryo political party. So I, I think, I might be wrong about this, but I would be very surprised if suddenly any of these... MPs are going to be joining the Liberal Democrats. I think they want to continue as independent MPs in Parliament. Mm. And in contrast, those who've decided to remain, but I've had less time to speak to them as, about the background of this, have found that the working relationships they've been crafting have been sufficiently dynamic and interesting mm. that they think they do have some future uh, where they go whether they might eventually coalesce with another party or what they choose to do, I don't know. But they think there is a, a reason for being there and identifiable in party terms. And in the past, you said you resigned the whip if, if Boris Johnson became leader and stay as, a, as an independent Conservative. Is that, is that still your position? Is there, with the, with the way the leadership contest I, I, I think out? I would have great difficulty remaining in the Conservative Party taking the whip if Boris were to be uh, elected our leader, because I think that the direction of travel in which he is going to try to take us, unless he changes his mind on the day he becomes the leader, uh, is one that I am going to find very difficult to live with. And I think one has to face up to the fact that there might then come a point where it is intolerable and you have to, you have to face up. All parties can accommodate disagreement and should be able to. After all, colleagues like Bill Cash voted against the, their own party hundreds of times in the course of their career, and yet Bill was always a valued colleague, notwithstanding that. And on the whole, I think some colleagues have been indulgent of me, even though I've actually rebelled very few times, but though some people have appreciated that. And on the whole, one would like to continue doing that. But I think there does come a point where you might have just simply to say, this cannot work. And I'm not sure, well, not just not sure, I'm pretty sure the other way, that in fact there are quite a few other colleagues who would find themselves in a similar position. So, and it's difficult to know to what extent we should say that, because it sounds a bit apocalyptic, but I do think it's quite important to get the message across to the candidates standing for the leadership of the Conservative Party that we are now really very close to a point where I think the party will not be able to hold together if some of the policies that some of these candidates are talking about, like no-deal Brexit, are really their position, because I do not see how they will be able to, to hold the party 
uh, in one piece. Thinking about Brexit all the time is definitely bad for you. Talking about it is great. Then in the interest of relaxation and self-care, you might enjoy listening to another podcast that we produce. It's called Be There with Darley Loudspeakers, and it's a fortnightly celebration of the minds behind great music, brought to you in association with the makers of incredible high-end audiophile speakers from Denmark. Each episode features great music writers and broadcasters getting under the skin of what's happening in music, and you can search Be There with Darley on your favourite podcast app to subscribe. Here's a taster of the latest episode. This is excellent music writer Kate Hutchinson of The Guardian on London's new jazz explosion. No one really saw this coming, uh, did they? Um, jazz being the cool genre among young, cool club crowds in London. But a lot of the new young players are pulling on their diasporic heritage. You know, there's mm. Afrobeat, there's Calypso, there's Dub, there's London Grime. There's even UK Garage in there. Little little flavours, little flourishes that really give um, the London sound an edge. And also, the London sound is, is party. Yeah. It's danceable. This isn't music to sort of sit down and have a nice dinner at. This is like jump up, skank out, mm-hmm. dancing jazz. That's Be There with Darley Loudspeakers from the makers of Romaniacs. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app. This week's special guest, as we've been hearing, is Dominic Grieve MP, a man so closely associated with our cause that people think his full name is Dominic Grieve Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic, what would you be doing um, in politics now, if not for if not for Brexit, in this wonderful parallel universe where this is not consuming all of your time? Um, what would be the issue that you would be uh, you would want to be known for? I came into politics, I think not particularly desiring to use my legal skills in the political uh, forum, but I have to accept I got niched quite quickly. And um, (laughs) although I'd never intended to be the Attorney General, I did actually enjoy being the Attorney General. I suppose in an ideal world, if I'm looking back on my career, I was rather hoping that I would be Attorney General for a while. I certainly didn't expect to be sacked by David Cameron in quite the way he did it, but we did have a difference of view on the European Convention on Human Rights, which was his reason for getting rid of me. And I suppose in an ideal world, I was rather hoping that if I fulfilled that reasonably well, I might then be appointed to some other post, cabinet post. And the areas of interest to me are uh, home affairs and justice, because they're subjects which I know quite a lot about, whether it's about getting more effective police force uh, or indeed trying to pay for our court system, which is in very, very serious uh, difficulty. That's probably where I ought to be applying myself had I become Secretary of State for Justice. Uh, And indeed, I have a big interest in foreign affairs and actually quite a big interest in defence. I'm currently chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, which has a link into that. Um, So those are the sorts of areas in which I would have liked my career to go if it was at all possible. Uh, And I certainly hadn't expected that I would turn into a traitorous rebel, uh, or as I think somebody (laughs) described once, I think flatteringly, a bespectacled Che Guevara, which I thought was rather (laughs) odd. So, but that's where it's ended up. Uh, But it was not, if somebody had told me four or five years ago that that was going to be what was going to happen, I would have expressed absolute astonishment. And did you expect when you when you became one of the kind of you know because of these particular kind of these amendments and interventions which made a huge difference um did you think deselection 
challenges, no confidence votes would be sort of would be would, would be coming down the pipeline, or did you think that people would be like, well, we still like him as an MP, we disagree with him on this? Like, how 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 much did you see coming? I was absolutely clear in my mind once you start down that road that there were going to be consequences, and in some ways. Uh, the deferral of those consequences for nearly 12 months after this process started was rather longer than I had reason to expect. I should make clear, I'm a very happy constituency MP and very fortunate, not only with my constituency and the fact it's a safe Conservative seat, but very happy with an association that historically has been very supportive, very friendly, uh, and with whom I've, over a 22-year period, with some of them only the activists, that's probably about 250 out of the 1,200, got real links of friendship. And, of course, you could see, anybody must see for themselves that this starts to put strain into the system. Indeed, Brexit put strain into the system even before I started down this road. But it seemed to me that I had to do it. Um, and I tried to manage it as best I could, and I tried to make clear to my constituents and my association why I was doing what I was doing and also try to reassure them that I wasn't trying to break the Conservative Party apart because I'm not. From my point of view, I'm trying to save the Conservative Party and as I've kept on making the point in advocating a referendum, I've pushed this because I happen to think it's the one way that we might keep the party together and then be able to concentrate on the things on which we agree. Uh, But no, I I was not at all surprised when we came to the crunch point where enough people put in a a motion saying that they had no... Well, they they tried to put in a motion saying they had no confidence. That was, in fact, put in... It was out of order because some of the signatories were no longer members of the association. But we had the debate on whether the association had confidence in me, which I lost at the AGM. Uh, And there are still further processes, and I can't be at all certain as to how... It will all end up. But my goodwill towards the association, my affection for many of them is completely undimmed. And I'm also perfectly accepting that members of my association are entitled, if they take a very different view from me, to be upset by what I've done. And I mean, obviously, Conservatives are not crazy about the idea of a Jeremy Corbyn led uh, Labour government. Um, But if it came to a kind of no deal scenario for one of those kind of people was, was prime minister, do you think how realistic a possibility is it that that um, more moderate conservatives would, you know, bring down the government to prevent that, even if it opened the door to to Labour? Because that's that's a, a tough one to call. I'm sure nobody would precipitate a general election by breaking with one's own party, except if they felt that there was absolutely nothing else that they could reasonably do. And, of course, if the government were to fall and no new government could be formed for 14 days, we would have a general election. And that raises the very real risk of a Corbyn government, led government. And I think all Conservatives are united. Indeed, I suspect more than Conservatives in thinking a Corbyn-led Labour government would be a really bad idea. A lot of Labour Party MPs think that a Corbyn-led Labour government would be catastrophic. But you've also got to weigh into this balance the fact that if we deliver a no-deal Brexit, which turns out to be economically very damaging to the country and indeed also damages national security, the quality of life of people who are living here, then if Corbyn survives as leader of the Labour Party long enough, I would have thought the preconditions for a Labour victory at the next general election were rather good. So 
This idea, which certainly seems to be very prominent amongst Conservatives, we cannot afford to have a general election because it will deliver Corbyn, and we must do absolutely anything, including delivering a hard Brexit and doing a pact, if necessary, with the Brexit party, which is beyond my comprehension. Uh, you know, all begs the question that none of these things will save you from a Corbyn-led or left-wing Labour government if, in fact, the consequences are as bad as I happen to think they will be. I mean, the Brexit Party's performance um, was was you know sort of higher than higher than expected, and not higher as all polls were predicting. Um, but that's the European elections. That's a very specific case. How much? How nervous are you about the Brexit Party either cannibalising, uh, continue to cannibalise the vote, a Tory vote at a general election, or doing what happened, famously happened in Canada, where it was a kind of like I don't know reverse takeover. Parasite eats the host. I don't know what the analogy is. But you know, you know how, how much of a threat long term do you think? The Brexit Party is thriving on paralysis. As long as the Conservative Party is paralysed and unable to agree a programme to resolve Brexit one way or the other, it is going to feed on that and it is going to start taking all the Brexit-leaning votes, both from Labour and ourselves. But... It's also worth bearing in mind that we're hemorrhaging votes from moderates to the Lib Dems. And so the irony is that if you think the solution is to cosy up to the Brexit party, um, what's going to happen is what actually the Prime Minister found in 2017. I mean, her, the Conservative vote went probably to its highest level, but enough people had hemorrhaged, in this case, to Labour, mm. that we were deprived of forming a majority government. So the indecision is what's killing us and, to an extent, the inability to have effective leadership. Uh, if we can find a leader who actually finds a way through this, I come back to my point about a referendum being a useful mechanism of doing it, then I think if we can get through that and it resolves the matter, then the Brexit party will start to wither, just as UKIP withered very quickly post-2015. But, I mean, a diff curiously, we pursued policies that have made Brexit central. We know that in 2015, opinion poll surveys showed that 5% of the electorate thought the EU membership was a key issue in their lives. Now, not surprisingly, it's about 50%. Uh, and, and they're right to say that because it's become a really important yeah. issue. Um, but I think that if we were to put this issue to bed by, say, voting remain in the referendum, and as a consequence this brings this current spat to an end. Whereas some of my colleagues believe that this would lead to a UKIP party or Brexit party continuing to be very, very vigorous and sucking away our votes, it's not my assessment. I think that once that clean end had been brought about, and as long as you had Conservative government concentrating on some bread and butter issues which really matter to people and which Rory Stewart was articulating in car parks in Cumbria, then in those circumstances you will find that the UKIP party will decline again and will disappear. Farage is a populist demagogue, and populist demagogues need a grievance on which to latch. And if the grievance is largely absent because it's either been resolved or it's going away or it's ceased to matter, it will go. I wanted to ask you about your constituency, because it's one of the wealthiest in the country, I think it would be fair to say. But it has... Really, you've had an entryism in your party. You've had a lot of anti-elite um, members joining you. Why, why is there so much fury 
at elites in such a well-off part of the country? Because we're often told that the Brexit vote was really about austerity and people being hacked off and just wanting a change for the sake of change. But these are people who won't be susceptible to that kind of argument. What's the, what's the explanation? The Leave vote in my constituency falls into two distinct sections. Although it is a very wealthy area, you've also got to understand it's pervasively conservative with a small c. And it has lots of people who would be described as self-employed conservatives and what what is dismissively treated by some Labour MPs as white van man, but actually are very good people who are earning their keep and feel independently minded. So some of the support for Brexit, undoubtedly, and you could see how it panned out in the different areas depending on, on wealth, were in those areas. But it's also right to say that there are quite a lot of retired people who are wealthy in my constituency who believe in Brexit for these patriotic, almost atavistic reasons, sometimes accompanied by Germanophobia. You get quite a lot of that in the, <laughs> in the mailbag. Uh, and uh, you know, an expression of national identity in the face of globalisation and immigration undoubtedly played a very major part, although the area is clearly a massive beneficiary from immigration, as is obvious to anybody. Quite apart from anything else, I have a very big South Asian community, most of whom are very wealthy and have done very well. Uh, but also we have large numbers of people who come in to work in the services sector, particularly in care homes, who come out of London to work in the daytime when the commuters go back in. You have to stand on the platform, you can watch all these people come out and the difference between the people who are travelling in. We're dependent on them. But for all that, this was voted on for these very fundamental reasons. Now, I think it's important not to exaggerate. Um, I suspect some of these trends were latent within my association from people who are not activists. I think that was the most marked phenomenon. And because they're not activists, they pay the subscription, they turn up to select the MP, and then largely they leave the MP alone unless they come along with a personal problem or occasionally you bump into them and say, I've been a member of the association for 40 years. And you think, how interesting. I had no idea this person was a member of the association. Um, but they're not necessarily very heavily into the nuances of day-to-day -day politics or what's going on, and that's in their entitlement. But my impression is that they were there, and it's they particularly, or some of them, and we don't know. I mean, 1,200 members, I have no idea. All I know at the moment is out of 1,200 members, there were 182 who voted against me at a annual general meeting. So I don't know whether that is the majority of the association. I don't know whether it's, in fact, a minority who are very vociferous. I have no means of knowing, and nor has anybody else. Um, but they are there and they are present and they are very upset. And the longer Brexit has gone on, the more they've sensed a failure of Brexit. They were leave voters, the more upset they've become. And into that, there has been a certain amount of entryism. It's very difficult to quantify because in one case, it is a UKIP activist. He stood against me for UKIP in 2017. Uh, and uh, it's quite clear from the emails he was sending out in the immediate run-up to the uh, my association AGM that he would decided to take his UKIP activism into the Conservative Party. Uh, he would argue that he's a good Conservative and it's just that I'm a bad Conservative and he's entitled to do it. But, I mean, that, that's, that's his argument. And there are undoubtedly people who have been attracted into joining the Conservative Party since the referendum who were UKIP voters before. Indeed, the Conservative Party has marketed itself 
to UKIP voters to come and join. And as long as you are not an activist and as long as you don't vote for another party, which then does gently raise the question of what some of my association members were doing two weeks ago, (laughs) uh, then you are a member of the association and you're entitled to come along. So that's why this has happened. And it's not unique I mean, the remarkable thing is, is that absolutely loyal colleagues who have never rebelled against the Prime Minister's line but are thought to be vaguely Remainer or ex-Remainer, at their AGMs this spring, had small groups turn up and call for their removal. Now, these had all been motivated by Aaron Banks's campaign, which has been actively pursued by him with the intention of purging and cleansing the Conservative Party of elements that he perceives to be undesirable. And if he succeeds in his aim, then the Conservative Party will turn into a right-wing groupuscule party. So if you're going to... We've got that to look forward to. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're going to have people try and remove you, it might as well be because you've passed a extremely tabled extremely important amendment rather than just because you're on Aaron Banks' list. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dominic. We're at the end of the show, which means another contribution to the Brexit time capsule. Dominic Grieve, as our special guest, uh, what are you putting into our sealed archive of things we'll miss if we ever leave the EU one day? Well, i tell you what I'll put into the time <clears throat> capsule uh, because it shows where I started going off the rails at a very young age. All the material <laughs> I've kept from when I worked for the Keep Britain in Europe campaign in 1975. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, a veteran of a that veteran. campaign. <laughs> oh, it was nice to, nice, nice to win one as well. Win one, lose one. Hopefully win the next one. Thanks, Dominic. This week's EU language quote is in Romanian from Christina Elgood. Un om de rând și fără prejudecăți, pe bună dreptate ar fi îngrijorat dacă un grup de suporteri ai lui Faraj s-ar muta vecin lângă el. That means Nigel Farage infamously said any normal and fair-minded person would have a perfect right to be concerned if a group of Romanians suddenly moved in next door. So Christina says, any normal and fair-minded person would have a perfect right to be concerned if a group of Farage supporters suddenly moved in next door. <laughs> Touché. Remember, we want your European language clips. Send a short recording to us at info at and we'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Uh, Dominic Grief, thanks for being our very first Conservative MP on the show. Um, are, you, are you optimistic? At the moment, are you, how, how are, the, how are I, things I'm, looking this summer? I'm always optimistic, despite <laughs> moments of, uh, of gloom, because I believe the great British ship of state can list heavily, but it has massive self-writing mechanisms. <laughs> and I'm also very conscious of the fact that I'm a historian, and I was explaining this to an audience, and they were saying, you know, how are we ever going to get over this? How are we ever going to come together, whatever the outcome, even if we succeed, even if the Remain arguments were to eventually succeed, we're going to be divided forever? And I say, I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, think of the English Civil War. If, if you, Pretty divisive. If you, very divisive. <laughs> very divisive. Uh, lasted for effectively a 20-year period. Uh, the equivalent, if the modern-day population of, the United, of our British Isles had been what it is, it would have been 250,000 people killed during the course of the, this civil war. And within about five years of the restoration of King Charles II, they used to refer to it as the late unpleasantness. <laughs> and I always think that that's, that provides me with a lot of reassurance that I think we can get over this. Brilliant. We'll be back next week. Now here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, and a salute to some of our latest Patreon backers. And it's thanks from me to uh, Robert Boyd, Paul Maycock, Greg Bisgrove, Catherine Davies, 
Stricker and Anna's love child, uh, one dated quite quickly, Lewis Martin, Mo Gillespie, Gavin James Fraser, physical attraction. What the fuck are you people, man? You're so weird. Adrian Marsh and Stephen Neeson. Thanks, guys. Hello from me to Marcia Skelton's Calvin Faraday, Peter Gowers, Chris Torres Olsen, Sananda Poole, Paul Dawson, Andy Blackhall, MA. Is it a person? Is it a degree? Who knows? Cole McCormack and Paul Wesley. And finally, thanks for me to Theo Gibson, Stephen Windsor, C.L. Pollock, Ian Young, Dave Hughes, Will Avery, Dan Green, David Hipkin, Sean Barry and Vicky Ball. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ros Taylor and Ian Dutt. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Sophie Black, at Soho Radio. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.